Hey there, this is Paul Roberts of the Security Ledger. If security and the Internet of Things are your thing, I wanted to let you know about a great event Security Ledger is hosting on June 19th in Boston. It's the fifth Security of Things Forum. It's a full day of great content on securing the Internet of Things. If you're interested in learning more and either presenting or just attending the forum, text the word THINGS, that's T-H-I-N-G-S, to the number 345-345 on your cell phone. That's THINGS to 345-345. You can also point your web browser to the event website, securityofthings.com, to learn more, to submit an abstract for a talk, or to register. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's show, number 86, after years of being vague about it, the Securities and Exchange Commission has finally expanded and clarified its guidance on disclosing cybersecurity incidents. We're joined by Chip Block of the firm Evolver to talk about what the SEC said and what it means for publicly traded firms. Also, thousands of radiologic sensors were deployed in the United States following the attacks of September 11, 2001. Increasingly, they're connected to each other and to the internet. We look at new efforts to secure those systems from cyber attack. But first, the U.S. State Department last week decided to make temporary staff cuts to the Cuban embassy permanent, citing a need to protect American personnel there from what the State Department called a series of, quote, health attacks, reportedly sonic assaults that left embassy staff and employees with hearing loss, dizziness, and a range of other worrying symptoms. Did attacks really take place? Our first guest in this week's podcast, Professor Kevin Fu of the University of Michigan, thinks that there's good reason to believe they did not. He and a fellow researcher, Wenyan Zhu were able to recreate the mysterious sounds recorded by American diplomats in their lab. The culprit? What Fu calls axial interference by ultrasonic emitters causing audible byproducts. In this conversation, I asked Kevin to describe what that mouthful of terms means, what might have been the source of the disturbing sounds experienced by the embassy staff, and what his research means for the future of the Internet of Things. My name is uh, Kevin Fu. I'm associate professor at the University of Michigan and chief scientist at Vertilabs. You know, at the high level, um, what our research found through both simulation and live experiments is that there's um, a simpler explanation for what may have gone on in Cuba, and that is axial interference of ultrasonic emitters causing audible byproducts. That's a mouthful. <laughs> Well, of course. Why do we think of that? The backstory here is that there's been some uh, allegations that acoustic weapons, some kind of uh, directed acoustic weapon had been had been pointed at the, again, the diplomats and their family members that had caused sort of concussion-like symptoms, loss of hearing and headaches and some cognitive impairment, and that uh, many of these diplomats had left the embassy. And it was a big mystery as to where these were coming from, whether they were actively uh, some kind of weapon was being used or what. So talk a little bit about what you guys are positing here, what that mouthful of terms you just laid on us means. Um, I think we cast a little doubt on the notion of a sonic weapon. Um, so I'm a, I'm a believer in uh, Occam's razor. You look for the simplest solution. And to us, the simplest solution is that these audible tones were generated accidentally from perhaps some other 
nefarious purpose, but potentially without uh, intent for harm. So one of the reasons why I I uh, am very skeptical of sort of the deliberate sonic weapon is that, for instance, if it's ultrasound, there is very little evidence of airborne ultrasound being able to cause harm, uh, except at extremely loud uh, intensity. There are studies that show uh, harm when you directly touch a a vibrating ultrasonic emitter. Uh, You can think of things like arc welders. Uh, If you hold arc welders in the wrong way, uh, your fingers can actually start to get white. Uh, You get cavitation bubbles uh, inside your body, heating inside your body. But airborne ultrasound, it's it's highly unlikely for that to happen at any realistic intensity that can go any distance. So to us, we thought, hmm, we had been working on how ultrasound and other sound waves affect the computer security uh, of sensors and other systems. And we felt like we were pretty well equipped to do a couple experiments. And to us, this is sort of like, a uh, graduate school homework assignment doesn't really rise to the level of an academic research paper, but we, we did a couple experiments and using some very well-known techniques. Actually, some of these techniques have been around for over 100 years. All we did was we combined acoustic tones that happen to be ultrasound to recreate the tones that were heard in Cuba. All it takes is actually a single uh, ultrasonic transmission that contains at least two different tones in order to cause the effects that uh, have been observed in Cuba. Um, you know, malfunctioning spy gear to me seems like um, a reasonable hypothesis to explore. But there are also other reasons that maybe are less nefarious, things such as malfunctioning pest repellents. So there are ultrasonic pest repellents you can buy, especially popular in, in warm places. They can be rather loud. There are room occupancy sensors that keep the lights on uh, that actually emit continuous ultrasound. Actually, we have them in pretty much every room in, in my office building. They're surprisingly common and, and few people realize they're already being bathed in ultrasound. And if you were to introduce just one more tone, uh, you have this potential for these audible sensations that result from the uh, ultrasonic tones combining uh, to produce this audible byproduct. How is it that these two different tones that are both ultrasonic combine to produce either a harmful ultrasonic or a, a sonic signal that is harmful? That's a, that's a good question. So this is a very old principle, been known over 100 years. It's gone by different names, intermodulation distortion. The music community calls it a combination tone. Uh, in some fields, they'll talk about heterodyning. Oh, there are all these fancy words for it. Um, but basically, when you uh, have a signal propagate through something like air or a solid, it doesn't propagate perfectly, shall we say. We use the term nonlinear. Whenever you have a nonlinear medium, you get these unusual byproducts at uh, the sum and difference of the frequencies being transmitted. It's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, It involves a little bit of uh, trigonometry and algebra, but suffice to say, you're going to get all these extra tones. Now, the, the one that's most important is the difference, because if you have two very high-frequency ultrasonic tones, the difference can actually be in a very low frequency, in particular in the audible range. Mm-hmm. That's how this happens. Uh, at least in our laboratory, we're fairly reliably able to generate these 7 kilohertz tones that were observed in Cuba. And not only that, we we're able to generate the ripples of 180 hertz frequency surrounding those tones, also just from using uh, ultrasonic emissions. And that jived with what they were reporting down there. That's right. Uh, We call it the spectral characteristics, but uh, you can kind of think of it as if you were to look at the equalizer of all these tones, um, the equalizer looks very similar. 
What devices did you use in your laboratory to test this out? We used a few different ultrasonic emitters. We have a general purpose. You can kind of think of it as like a speaker, but for ultrasound. Um, we also have some custom transducers. Um, it's not a speaker, but it can emit a single tone. You can think of it as a buzzer, but at ultrasonic frequencies that you as a human cannot hear. So we would take different combinations of these, and then we would do something called modulation. Um, think of it as like an AM radio transmission, but instead of going over a radio, we're setting it over an ultrasonic frequency. Mm-hmm. So we would perform this uh, AM modulation, sending information uh, over the ultrasound, and then watching what happens as it interferes uh, with a nearby transducer. And were you yourselves able to hear these tones in the lab? That's right. Although it's interesting because different people heard different things. Uh, it's very uh, localized. It's not an all directions kind of signal. So you'd expect if you move just a couple feet, you might not hear it at all. It's also very age related. So um, at one point I was running an experiment and um, the students near me started complaining, saying, Professor Fu, that's really annoying. Could you please turn that off? And I said, turn what off? Um <laughs> I just happened to be nearly twice their age. Uh, (laughs) I looked on my uh, spectrum analyzer and I noticed I was uh, generating a 15 kilohertz byproduct, which to them was very audible. And to me, I couldn't hear it. There are actually uh, devices you can buy. There's something called the Mosquito that's used for adults to sort of um, repel teenagers because uh, (laughs) adults can't hear it, but it's very annoying to teenagers. So they won't loiter outside your store or something like that? Correct. Uh, And then it's a dual-use technology. So, of course, Genius has turned it into a ringtone uh, so that teenagers can hear their phone ringing, whereas the adults cannot. They're so clever. They use our own technology against us. Uh, Much of what you describe really jives with the the reporting about what's been happening at in Cuba, particularly the directionality of it. I think some of the embassy staff there reported just what you said, that it seemed very directional. If they moved, uh, you know, to a different part of the room or out of the room, that it would stop. But then if they went back in, it would be there. What about the the aspect of this where it's causing actual damage, um, you know, again, concussion-like symptoms and, and uh, hearing loss? Is that consistent with these um, types of ultrasonic abnormalities? Well, yes and no. Um, I, I would say it, these tones are consistent in that there is a large body of research from the past 100 plus years on how audible tones can cause dizziness, nausea, uh, things of that nature from just uh, certain tones. Um, and there's certain, uh, certain combinations of frequencies that cause the human processing system to get rather confused. Um, there's actually a great book called The Handbook of Human Vibration that even measures normalized vomiting by frequency. Um, and there's, there's been a, a great bit of quite serious research uh, into understanding um, rates of vomiting based upon certain audible tones. Hmm. Um, now, where it gets a little more confusing is, I think, this permanent damage. Now, it's not clear to me if it's, it's permanent. Uh, it's very hard to establish that when you don't have a control trial. If this were permanent damage, I would have to imagine the, the tones would have need to have been uh, extremely high and extremely persistent. Also, there are plenty of other alternative theories that would be consistent. So our research is is far from conclusive. We can only rule in that this seems like a very simple solution, but we haven't been able to rule out other possibilities. Um, For instance, you might consider microwave technology. Um, Some of these transmitters are also very directional. Uh, If you go back to some research on uh, 
radiation therapy machines. In the past, when there have been malfunctions uh, in cancer treatment machines, there was actually one patient who reported hearing the sound of scrambled egg as he was being uh, radiated by accident. And so in his case, he was sensing hearing, even though it wasn't actually hearing. It was a different neurological process. I mean, we just had you on the podcast a few weeks ago, and you were talking about research that you had done on, you know, the ability to uh, interfere with the functioning of uh, connected devices, uh, wireless devices, using some of these, as you call them, physics-based attacks. Is, is this um, connected to that? Is this kind of one manifestation or possible manifestation of that? Uh, it is. So um, I'm a big believer that we've overlooked a lot of research opportunities in the physics of computer security. This is just one more example. I think it's really important as devices are moving more into what we call cyber-physical systems or very related, the Internet of Things. I think it's very important for the designers of these systems to at least understand the risks uh, and the limitations from a physics point of view. Because you might build something that looks beautiful in you know, a piece of Java code, but then in reality, you get bizarre things like these interacting audible tones that cause uh, pain. Just some very bizarre things can happen uh, in the real world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, you talk a lot about sort of the emergent emergent risks or emergent properties of these complex systems where you have multiple different sensing devices and emitting devices all kind of thrown together haphazardly. Um my guess is that we may start to see more of these types of unintended consequences as a result of that. Oh, definitely. And in fact, we have a, a paper coming out uh, in May uh, at the IEEE uh, Symposium on Security and Privacy, um, where we show how actually someone can just use JavaScript on a website to cause your uh, Windows system to uh, lock up or reboot just by playing tones through your own speaker system. There have been some really pretty severe uh, uh, consequences of this incident in Havana. The U.S. has pulled back much of its embassy staff and, and recently announced, I think last week, that they were going to kind of keep the staff at that low level. And this incident is really precipitated that freezing in the relations there. Have you reached out to either the Department of State or the FBI uh, to talk to them about your studies? And have you, if so, have you heard anything back? Um, yeah, I have reached out uh, to, to both of these entities. Now, be mindful that for an issue so sensitive to diplomatic relations, I'm not expecting to hear a response. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I've been able to discern that our, our report is making its way up the, the chain. I'll just say it's extremely important for scientists to be able to to explain their research in ways that aren't 100% geeky. And to me, the, the take-home point from, from our research is that we present a very reasonable theory on how this could have happened without intent for harm. We don't have any results about what players or what nation states could have been involved in this, but we do put forth this, this theory, which is substantiated by uh, not just our simulations, but our uh, live experiments, um, that this could have just been an accident from some other purpose or some other operation. And I know, you know, in the U.S., obviously, we have a federal agency, the Federal Communications Commission, that is actually um, tasked with making sure that these types of um, interferences don't 
happen. I'm wondering, are they mindful of, as you note, the increasing number of uh, ultrafrequency devices that are coming onto the market? You mentioned uh, pest control and teenager control and so on. Does the FCC need to be giving more scrutiny to these devices and to the types of um, interference and unintended consequences that might uh, they might cause when they're out in the physical world? There is regulatory guidance from the FCC on, on some of these issues. But I think what you're pointing out is that the world is really is uh, quickly changing because of the products being put out there. And just in the old days is when you didn't have too many cars on the road, you didn't need to worry about collisions. Today, we're having so many products out there. They may have worked perfectly fine in isolation, but because we're just bathing ourselves, you know, IoT light bulbs all over the place, microprocessors and LEDs, suddenly some of the not significant sources of interference are, are becoming actually relevant to common situations. So I, I don't know what the, the next step might be for the FCC, but um, at least keeping their pulse on this because um, it can change so quickly, especially with Silicon Valley and a desire to have hockey stick, uh, rapid deployment of new technology that could quickly go from having no effects to having many effects when ultrasound or um, RF interference is involved. Okay, final question. If you are concerned that there might be um, ultrafrequency devices in your own environment, is there any easy way to determine um, what's operating in around you, whether that's in your office or in your home? A consumer can certainly shell out $10,000 to buy some of the <laughs> signals analysis equipment. The iPhone actually is capable uh, of hearing up to uh, about 20 to 23 kilohertz, which is in the very low ultrasonic ranges. So you, you might be able to actually um, measure that. However, at least we find in practice, most of our sources of ultrasound uh, start around 25 kilohertz, which is beyond the range of a consumer device. It, I'd say a home hobbyist could fairly easily build a handheld device to measure this. But um, I think the average person uh, probably doesn't need to worry. The strength of signals coming out uh, of, of these things are, I think, um, nominal uh, in the consumer case. But I'm, I'm more concerned when you have a device that isn't a consumer device that maybe not be paying attention to uh, maximum limits of mm -hmm. um, intensity. You know what I'll do, Kevin, is I'll just put your email and cell phone number in the blog post, and that way anyone who has concerns <laughs> can just reach out to you, <clears throat> and I'll tell them that you'd be happy to help them, okay? It'd be great to have someone in the makerspace build a, a device that for yeah. does um, down conversion. It's called down conversion. So for any um, kids out there who are looking to um, have do fun, a cool project. Uh, do a cool project, build something that does automatic down conversion. It's not too hard. Uh, That'd be fun. Um, I don't know. Go do a Kickstarter project and, and yeah. uh, get all those frequencies from 20 to 50 kilohertz to be down converted uh, into the audible range. And, and then your iPhone can very easily plot it. Kevin Fu of University of Michigan and Vertilabs, thank you so much for coming on the Security Ledger podcast and talking to us. Thanks, Paul. Up next, it's been almost seven years since the Securities and Exchange Commission first issued guidance about the need for companies to disclose cyber incidents that affect them. 
That guidance set a low bar, asking companies to disclose only breaches that were material to them, and then leaving it up to the regulated firms to decide what the threshold for materiality was. No surprise, in the intervening years, we've seen relatively few disclosures of cyber incidents by companies, at least when those incidents hadn't already become the subject of headlines and news coverage in the public. In recent days, however, the SEC has updated that guidance, providing far more specific and granular instructions to regulated firms on the matter of cyber incident disclosure. The new guidance also has some intriguing implications for connected device makers. In the second part of this week's podcast, we invited Chip Block of the firm Evolver back into the Security Ledger studio to talk about the SEC's new guidance. I'm Chip Block. I'm the vice president of Evolver uh, in Reston, Virginia. So, so the direction in 2011 was mainly stating if you had a major material event, you were disclosed that. And cyber fell within those general guidelines. And most companies treated that exactly that way. Unless there was a major event, you didn't hear anything. What the SEC has come out and said now is they're saying, now, this should be part of your regular reporting, your, whether it be 8Ks and 10Ks reporting. And they gave very specific guidance on what is in those reports. Uh, they want to know the, the specific risks to the company not just what has happened in the past, but what the risks are going forward. And they laid out in quite uh, specific detail what should now be in, what their guidance is, is what should be in those reports. You know, the, the lack of clarity around the SEC guidance on cybersecurity incidents has been a sticking point for many, many years. People have said, you know, there needs to be clearer guidance about disclosure. There need to be uh, sharper teeth in there to force companies to um, fess up to these incidents and not just sweep them under the rug. Many of us were waiting for some kind of federal legislation that might, that might force that, but that didn't really come along. Why now with this expanded and, and much more granular guidance from the SEC. How should we understand why the SEC is coming forward now and and what prompted this more clear guidance? I think it was the the, the non-petches and the wannacries. And I think the availability hits over the past year, even though obviously Equifax is a very big one. I think the availability hits um, uh, are the ones that really caught everybody's attention. Uh, we've got it. We've had everything from medical devices now to uh, to, to the delivery of, of critical vaccines to the co- country to delivery of packages to to automotive uh, are now experiencing real financial hit, and that goes to the uh, you know the SEC. The job is to worry about the shareholders and. and of the country, uh, and that is now directly affecting the uh, stockholders of the country's pocketbook, if you would. So I think that is where there's obviously been lots of pressure, but I found it interesting that they came out with guidance as opposed to um, uh, direction or, or, or new, you could have come up with a new rule. That might have taken a while to get through and get approved, so that's one thing. The other thing that's interesting is they may have turned the community um, somewhat against, I don't want to say against itself, but turned it in a way that will get action. The reason being, if I was reading these legislations and, and I mean, this guidance, and I was thinking about what is my worst outcome, it's not the SEC. It's 
the shareholders. Uh, the, the, the SEC's fines, they will fine people, but even when you look at big SEC fines, we're talking about maybe millions. Okay. When you start talking about uh, that these are things that are supposed to be disclosed, when something bad happens, if you're going to get class action lawsuits from every shareholder who says you didn't properly disclose those risks, now you're talking about really serious money. And I think it'll have a more of an impact from that perspective than worrying about another fine or a judgment. And the, the previous guidance, by saying it, it needed to be a material event, you know, for multi-billion-dollar companies, I think materiality is usually kind of calculated based on some percentage of your revenues. Isn't that right? That is correct. And the other side of this is that uh, it's not just a money; it does does it materially impact your stock. And one of the interesting things that if you actually, until we got to this last year, last 18 months, you look at most of the major breaches, they actually had very little impact on the stock of the company. If you look at Target or Home Depot or things of those sorts, yes, they, you know, they may have ended up costing the company you know, several hundred million dollars, uh, but Actually, in the context of a Target or Home Depot and spread over a couple of years, that really isn't that much. Uh, what has changed and what I think moved the SEC forward was the past years. We have had now had several significant uh, uh, cyber attacks that have gone directly to the value of the company and to the shareholders' rights. I mean, most recently, the NotPetya attacks, right, which cost... FedEx, I think four hundred million dollars. Uh, Mondelez Candy, one hundred and eighty million dollars. Merck, what was it, two hundred and fifty million dollars, something like yeah, that. And still counting because they, they counting, reported right. that, and they said they thought they would take another one hundred and thirty in the next quarter. So, so those are significant. And then the two that are obvious uh, to the shareholders would be Yahoo and uh, St. Jude's Medical. Sure. Okay? sure. Because in the end. Those are companies that were in the middle of uh, acquisition, and the the impact caused drop of value of stock, and which caused drop of the sale price of the company, which went straight to the shareholders' pocket. There's a lot of of big kind of important changes here. One of them was that companies need to uh, make clear and expedient disclosure. Uh, this is a, a board-level responsibility of an incident. And they said specifically that the ongoing status of an investigation doesn't exempt organizations from having to disclose a material security incident. That seems kind of targeted at these companies who put off telling the world about an incident because they're, quote-unquote, still investigating it. Am I wrong in, in reading between the lines there? Oh, no, you hit that one right on the head because I think this has been going on for a while. In fact, I've known companies who almost have banned the word breach for any employee to ever type it in the computer, right? Because uh, as soon as you make that determination, all sorts of things kick in, right? You've got notification laws in every state and everything else. So when do you actually make a decision that there has been a breach? Uh, and the other side of that is, uh, do you have to truly determine that data left your company and went to somebody else? Or, well, I kind of lost track of things, or I had a ransomware attack, but I don't think anything left. I think what they're getting at here is, no, they're not going to let you get away with that one much anymore. You, 
if you believe you've had a major incident, uh, you got to report it. Uh, we've seen this recently. I know, for example, I think Hilton Hotels was fined some $700,000 by state of New York for delaying notification, I think, for over a year of a, a breach that happened in, in some of their hotels. So this has uh, become, unfortunately, pretty common that these disclosures might come months or more after the actual incident takes place. Yes, I agree. You point out also that there's there's some interesting language in here that, that could conceivably be applied to companies that are making um, connected products or physical products as well regarding vulnerabilities or cybersecurity incidents or risks that materially affect the product services or relationships with customers and suppliers and competitive conditions and so on. And you and I were talking, you said this potentially could be meaningful for IoT device companies that are deploying connected systems out there into the world. Yeah, I did, and I do. I think it has for a couple reasons. And I, you know, to give you some language that they're talking about, it says you, for all products and services, you're to report the following. One of them is the probability of occurrence and the magnitude of that event. That's one of the things you're supposed to report. And what actions have you t- taken to prevent that? One of the things in the current uh, world, cyber world we're dealing with, particularly the legal world, has been the issue of basically who can sue who. And there is the concept of um, which is known as uh, proving harm. In order for you to uh, sue somebody for a cyber attack, like Target, you had to prove direct harm, that what happened there directly harmed you. Not what could happen to you in the future or what might happen to you. What, how does it affect, how can you prove on this date I lost this much money or something of that sort? Well, what gets interesting here is that this now throws this into the product liability side of things, which says you must report what you believe are your risks uh, as, you, as a product. Every product, I mean, every IoT product, I would venture, has some cyber risk. We all know when you build the product, you could make it the most secure thing in the world, but it might run the price point to it to something that you can't sell it. Sure. So you're, make, you're making trade-off decisions. What, what the SEC is basically asking here is you need to let us know kind of where the – and again, I think they mean financially – but you need to let us know where those – risks are on that continuum of it'll make the product better but be less secure and what is the impact of that that sounds like it could be a heavy lift particularly for some of the low-end uh, connected device makers out there who are really you know all about time to market and and price unit unit cost the question there is if they're open about that i don't think you've got a problem if you're making a product and you make a statement as future risk is that w- that you understand that the, uh, the, the device has um, could be exploited for DDoS uh, attacks like a Mirai or something, but you understand that that is a potential risk and you state that in your SEC report. I'm not sure you're that, that vulnerable. The question is, will anybody invest in your product if you state that? So I think what they're asking here is, are you going to disclose where those decisions have been made and what will that do as far as the value of the product? 
you guys, Evolver has a new white paper out uh, specifically addressing these questions. What What's in it? What uh, Why should people download it? What are they going to learn from it? So well, the, the main thing is we, we provide really three things. Number one, kind of the history of how we got here, uh, some of the major cases. Uh, and I think that's important in the sense that people need to understand um, the context of, of this. The second thing is uh, a summary of what's in the SEC report. And the third thing is uh, a recommendation that what is already a rapidly moving capability be adopted by a lot of folks, and that is the monetary quantification of cyber risk. Utilizing standards such as the factor analysis of information risk, the FAIR standard, which is an open international standard and basically being adopted from everybody from Walmart to Bank of America. Everybody's kind of moving because they saw this coming, right? The smarter companies saw this coming from a ways. Okay. And, and that way you're going to be able to report in, in, in alignment with this. And actually, if you look at the FAIR standard, almost for this very almost point by point, the things they ask for are in there. Um, and it, it addresses the things such as developing the probabilities of attacks and the losses associated with that. I think the other thing in, is that, that we would recommend uh, is that you get your, your senior folks involved in this, meaning audit council, I mean, your, your audit group, your uh, general counsel and your technology folks and your boards folks to, to figure out how you're going to address this. Uh, and how do you actually want to start creating this information? I think you've, you're running a rather significant risk uh, from both the shareholder and SEC perspective if you ignore this. Uh, the fact that they listed Exchange Act means that they've got some, they've got the, the, the capability behind them to actually enforce something. So I don't think that uh, ignoring it is an option in this case. Chip Block of Evolver, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you, and I enjoyed it again. And finally, more than 2,000 radiologics detectors were deployed at U.S. ports of entry following the attacks of 9-11. The nondescript roadside boxes can stand more than 14 feet tall and sniff out fissile material passing by in trucks, cars, or shipping containers. But are those radiologic detectors as good at fending off cyber attacks? In our final segment, we speak with Dr. Rico Chandra, the CEO and co-founder of the firm Arctis, which makes radiologic detectors, about efforts to shore up this critical infrastructure against cyber attacks and the steps his company is taking to harden their devices. Dr. Chandra, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. It's great to have you. Well, thank you very much for your time. I guess a good place to start is with the monitors themselves. Could you explain to us what these devices do, where they're deployed, and what they look like? So radiation portal monitors are systems that are installed at just about every port of entry into the country. So ports of entry, that's all of the land border crossings between the U.S. and Canada and, and U.S. and Mexico and at, at, at most seaports. So um, if a ship arrives, a container ship arrives, the containers are offloaded onto trucks and the trucks, as they drive out of the port, they pass through these radiation portal monitors. Radiation portal monitors are passive devices that mean they, they don't emit any radiation, but they they detect 
radiation from the outside, in particular gamma radiation and neutron radiation. So these are tall boxes, one on each side of the road. Uh, they're, they're tall, so they're 14 feet tall, so they can scan trucks. They can be even bigger to scan trains. They're, they essentially just look like boxes bolted to the ground, and um, you might see occupancy sensors, you know, like uh, light barriers uh, that, that will register when a vehicle moves through them. If you've ever driven down to Mexico and crossed the border there or driven up to Canada, you've certainly passed through one of them. You wouldn't notice they are sometimes painted yellow. Shortly after 9-11, there was a big push to field a lot of these systems. So there's just short of 2,000 systems protecting our borders. Almost every uh, freight container that comes into this country via land or sea passes through one of these. You'll also find smaller ones, you know, pedestrian size. Uh, you'll also have mail being checked by smaller versions of this. There is also uh, other layers of security to protect us. The Department of Homeland Security has a program called Securing the Cities, in which there are uh, on on a city level, and you know the most important cities. There are many many networked detectors deployed over you know over the area of a city. Also internationally, most large seaports that, that conduct uh, shipping have radiation portal monitors that monitor what goes in and especially what goes out from those seaports. And then, and then there's also other efforts. Uh, the U.S. has, um, especially after, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, invested a lot to secure potentially dangerous uh, nuclear material at the source. So, you know, in, in countries like Russia and, and Kazakhstan to help the host countries secure those materials at the source. And then also there's what used to be called the second line of defense, radiation portal monitors set up along the borders of the, the countries that border the former Soviet Union. So these devices have been deployed for almost two decades. Talk to us about the cyber risks associated with them. Are there new risks to these radiologic detectors, or have the cyber risks always been there? Obviously, the more you start networking detectors and have them interconnected or remotely operated, the more that creates potential vulnerabilities for cyber attacks. Also, as you, if you look at the threat landscape today, that is something that has to be really mitigated because if you think back to 9-11, today it's completely conceivable that if you had a similar attack, that would be accompanied by a, a cyber attack in parallel to um, make the attack more effective or make the attack not be detected as fast. While in 9-11, you know, cybersecurity it, it was on the radar of many, but the, the likelihood of a terrorist attack having a cyber component to it wasn't as high as it is today. So there is a program going on to procure new radiation portal monitors. And in this program, cybersecurity has been incorporated from the beginning, you know, basically in the design and in the specifications. In older systems, cybersecurity was typically added on top. You know, a, a vendor would design a system and then 
afterwards he would add on whatever cybersecurity requirements were needed. Now cybersecurity had become a key part that is, you know, included by design in the most most modern and most most recent generation of systems. Today the threat landscape is changing and evolving so rapidly. It's good to have very focused, agile companies working on cybersecurity that you know where that are really experts in that field. And our approach is to you know team Arctis. Our approach is to work together as a team with companies that are agile and and each company is very very good at what they do and that that that's the reason for the partnership with securigens we often hear that there's not much to be done if a let's say nation state attacker wants to hack you if most of the likely adversaries who would be interested in tampering with these radiologic detectors are nation state actors and other sophisticated cyber adversaries is it realistic to expect that they can be secured or that it's worth securing them i think one of the the values that shouldn't be underestimated is the deterrence value of making our targets hardened. Um, so now that you know, now that there are radiation detection systems protecting whatever target, now that there are cybersecurity measures protecting those systems, well, an, an adversary needs to do a lot more research and needs to get organized in a completely different way if he wants to overcome these these defenses. And in, in organizing himself or herself and in informing himself or herself, adversaries will provide a lot more um, access points for intelligence services to, to, to pick up on their activities because, because um, you know, communicating and chattering about about uh, nuclear detection and 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 uh, cyber security that that could potentially get you onto the radar of of intelligence services so so I think I think it's a measured approach I think uh, considering the disruption that these uh, an, an event of nuclear terrorism or radiological terrorism could cause, it's it's a it's a fairly low price to pay. Obviously, I'm biased. I'm from the industry. Uh, this is this is you know um, my domain. But uh, I, I I can also say this with some sincerity that that I don't think we're going overboard on this. Dr. Rico Chandra, thanks so much for coming in to speak with us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for having me on the show, Paul. This has been very interesting. Dr. Rico Chandra is the CEO and co-founder of Arctis, a maker of radiologic detectors. 